threat landscape has diversified. What has been highlighted by this strategy is the fact that critical infrastructure is very much the focus now. So who would have thought in 2019 that suddenly the manufacturers of PPE would be so critical or the logistic companies ferrying food and goods suddenly critical? So many of the issues that actually were foreshadowed in the previous cybersecurity strategy or previous strategic documents of government, so much of the future is rushing at us now. It's all coming to pass. We've failed to drive cost into criminals, there's no doubt. We've, in fact, driven cost into our own operations. What does it mean for the Australian people? Because it seems a little bit stratospheric at the moment and straight out of a Bond movie. What does it actually mean? What's the impact on the Australian people? What's the impact on their everyday lives? That needs to be translated. The Prime Minister has said in public comments that it should be a buyer-beware approach to those users who do use TikTok. And I think for the one point, I think it's six million Australians using TikTok, a buyer-beware approach does imply they need some level of knowledge about that threat landscape. G'day. Welcome to this special episode of the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And those comments you just heard came from Alastair McGibbon, Gay Brotman, Rory Medcalf, and podcast host Catherine Manstead. We will be back to hear more from them on the recently released Australia Cyber Security Strategy for 2020, right after this break. 2020 currently the Chief Strategy Officer at CyberCX and before that, the National Cyber Security Advisor and the Head of the Australian Cyber Security Centre. Both Gay and Alastair are also members of the National Security College's Futures Council. Finally, last but not least, we have Professor Rory Medcalf, who is the Head of the National Security College. We've just had the new release of Australia's cyber security strategy. Um, things move fast in the cyber world. So Adam Segal, a US uh, analyst, says that 2012 was cyber year zero, the year where we first had the beginnings of geopolitical manoeuvring in cyberspace. That was the year we had um, revelations about the Stuxnet attack uh, on Iranian nuclear centrifuges, uh, Iran's damaging attacks against the financial sector in the US and 
and, uh, of course, uh, Chinese IP theft uh, ramping up dramatically at that time. Um, Australia first entered into this scene in a very public way with its first cyber strategy in 2016. We now have the second one. Uh, what, from your perspective, do you think has changed in terms of the landscape that we have now in cybersecurity, both in terms of the threat landscape and the ecosystem for defence and resilience in Australia um, since 2016 and now in 2020? Um, Alistair, I might start with you on that one. So we we know that uh, 2016 was the first fully funded, ambitious strategy. It wasn't the first time the Australian government had ventured into that space. In fact, it had done that well before uh, 2012, just just for the record, but but 2016 with uh, Prime Minister Turnbull, I think, set the benchmark for a quite ambitious strategy. And we often said that it was as much about the opportunity of getting some security right than the consequences of getting it wrong. Uh, and and I do think sparked a discussion in Australia, it spurned an industry. There's no doubt we saw an uptick in domestic cybersecurity skills. Uh, and in and in technology companies and in service providers, and we certainly saw the bureaucracy become more aligned. Never perfectly. I mean, everyone that's ever worked in the bureaucracy knows that uh, that sausage is uh, pretty interesting to see how it gets made. But uh, I, th- I think it was a good start. Two thousand and twenty, we see an emphasis on other things, but I'll leave that to others to start that conversation. I suspect. Gay, how has the threat landscape changed or matured since twenty sixteen? In, I think the th- uh, threat landscape has uh, well, it's it's diversified. Uh, but what has been highlighted by this uh, strategy is the fact that uh, critical infrastructure is very much the focus now. And I welcomed the initiatives uh, that are outlined in this strategy in terms of addressing those threats to the critical infrastructure. Uh, it's been there's been discussion in the critical infrastructure for some sector for some time about the fact that we need to broaden out what actually constitutes uh, critical infrastructure. At the moment, Australia's got eight sectors covered and uh, the rest of the world have got, particularly like-mindeds, have got much more than that. And so what is a really good thing from this uh, strategy, one of the uh, the uh, upsides of this strategy is the fact that it has focused on critical infrastructure and the threats against critical infrastructure, also focused on the fact that we actually need to broaden out what actually constitutes critical infrastructure, particularly in terms of our democratic institutions and our national institutions. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the government responds in terms of broadening out that the definition of critical infrastructure, what will actually be included. I'm particularly keen to see that our democratic institutions such as the AEC as well as our national institutions are included. Uh, but there, it's good having this conversation now about critical infrastructure. I think that um, in the past, particularly around 2016, it was still very early days, uh, but in res- the government responded in some ways to the latest threats in 2018 with that body of legislation that went through Parliament on critical infrastructure. In my view, it was still a bit underdone. It didn't address some of the key issues and the key sectors that needed to be included, but it was a good start. In fact, there are only five sectors currently regulated. Mm. Uh, TSSR brings in the uh, the telecommunications companies, which is clearly vital. And then you've got the um, the the SOCI Act, which 
looks at oil and gas or gas, uh, water, electricity and ports. But as Gay said, that's a pretty narrow list. And so what this strategy talks about is broadening that out. My understanding, about 15 or so sectors. So you have space, you have data and cloud really vital things and we know that we know that you know David Irvin uh has talked about spreading that out and and you know for those who don't know David Irvin he chairs FERB the Foreign Investment Review Board which is really a critical part now of national security so there's there's a good move there towards uh, more curricular infrastructure yes one of the things the strategy mentions quite a lot is the COVID-19 pandemic. I think in 50 pages or under of a strategy, um, it's mentioned some 15 times. And one of the things that I think that pandemic's pointed out to all of us is sometimes what you assess at a point in time is critical and important, um, doesn't capture future threats down the line. So who would have thought in Australia in 2019 that suddenly the manufacturers of PPE would be so critical or uh, the logistic companies ferrying food and goods to your local Woolworths, suddenly critical. Um, Alistair, can I stay with you for a moment here on critical infrastructure? Is there a risk that by focusing in on certain sectors, we might exclude or undervalue those sectors which do such critical work in the economy or to our society, but just the threat profile isn't there yet, or we haven't realised what the potential threats or vulnerabilities are? Well, as Gay said, I I think it You've got to you've got to eat the elephant from one end. As I bring another analogy, in. Um, you're welcome. You can have me any time. <laughs> do you I'm, have I'm to eat the elephant week. at all? <laughs> I'm here all week. Well, eating elephant. If you're going to do it, you start at one end. You start with critical infrastructure. It's really vital. And if you look at the strategy, uh, it the, you know in terms of what can can be considered quite light, it spends more effort on talking about critical infrastructure. So that's that that telegraphs where I think the government's going. If if people are reading the strategy, I'd recommend looking at. Uh, at paragraph 36, which starts signalling to the broader market um, what what the intention of government is in terms of regulating responsibility on directors and officers. And it talks about things like uh, the Consumer Law, the Privacy Act. It flags the potential for Corporations Act where it talks about directors and officers' responsibilities. That captures a much broader part of the economy because you're right. I mean, you don't know what's vital, particularly in a, in a supply chain world. And, and when you deal in cybersecurity, we know third parties bring an awful lot of risk to us. So where do you draw the edge of what you want to protect. This document actually, if you look at that paragraph 36 and then combine it with sort of 52 to 59, uh, you know, download it and have a look if you're listening, um, that actually flags this concept of driving responsibility uh, towards those that own and operate uh, what is now everywhere a critical piece of infrastructure, which is your IT operations. I think for readers playing along at home who don't want to download it, 36 has three lines of effort that the government flags it will be focused on. And I I want to come to a number of these um, in our conversation. The first is, um, as Alastair mentioned, the potentiality for duties to be imposed on company directors and other business entities um, in relation to their cybersecurity responsibilities. Um, The second is considering more deeply the role of privacy consumer and data protection law which I think is quite key. And the last one there is obligations on manufacturers of internet-connected devices. I'm sure we've all seen the statistics. They vary from the kind of more realistic to the sublime slash ridiculous on how many internet of... Internet of Things connected devices will exist in the world by 2030. That ranges from some 20 billion to 60 billion. It's a lot. And it's definitely something that this strategy is pivoting towards. Can I take you into the conversation or bring you into the conversation, Rory, on, on these points? Um, the strategy is very clear that 
addressing cybersecurity is a team sport, as it were. Right from the beginning, the Home Affairs Minister's forward, um, he says that cybersecurity is a shared responsibility. And the entire report is split up into three parts, um, actions for government, actions for business, and actions for the community. Um, to what extent is this kind of the new normal now for national security issues and security uh, reach more large, that it's something that government alone no longer has to, um, you know, take full responsibility for, but that we're asking our citizens and our businesses to step up and start to play in what is actually a pretty broad geopolitical game uh, as well. Yeah, so it should have been the normal all along, I guess, but uh, I think when you asked at the beginning about what's changed in the, the risk landscape in the past few years, so many of the uh, the issues that actually were foreshadowed in the previous cybersecurity strategy or previous strategic documents of government, so much of the future is rushing at us now. It's all mm. sort of coming to pass. And that is uh, risks that are at a whole of society level, whether it's it's the the pandemic, whether it's in fact the scale of and the, and the constant uh, nature of cyber intrusions and cyber attacks on Australia and other countries in recent years, whether it's now the shocks to the economy and of course uh, the, the intersection with environmental shocks as well, the, the terrible bushfires we've had in this country. So all of this adds up to national security is your problem too, uh, whether you're a member of civil society, just an ordinary citizen whether you're uh, working in a university, whether you're working in any area of the private sector. And I think it's absolutely clear that uh, the private sector uh, and indeed in a country like Australia, state governments, local governments, all these layers of authority, you're all at the front line. Um, anyone who's connected to the internet is potentially at, which is which is basically everyone, is connected yep. to the front line of national security risk and responsibility. And I think one of the, um, I, I hate to say the term, but I think one of the silver linings of the crises that we're going through at the moment is that awareness uh, that we're all responsible and that if we expect the state to step forward and protect our health, our welfare, our freedom of expression, our physical safety, uh, whatever it might be, we're going to have to contribute too. So I think it is time for that new narrative. And look, I think this is uh, not not a bad strategy. It is building on very strong foundations, but it probably could have played harder into that idea that obligation is on everyone, not just on business, but also, for example, in this country on um, on all levels of government. I think there's some data mm. recently that state governments uh, have experienced a very high proportion of, um, of, of cyber attacks, intrusion, I guess potential sabotage and certainly information gathering uh, in recent years. I think that's a that's a really important point that everyone is on the front lines, and I'm not sure this is something that is yet in the the zeitgeist that everyone is uh, understands that this threat profile. The strategy has a lot of high level and alarming statistics in it. So, in 2019, um, one in three Australian adults were impacted by cybercrime. It also looks at the number of threats that the Australian Cyber Security Centre responds to, which is experiencing a, a massive uptick and. 
incidents at a rate of almost six per day. Um, so the, the strategy is full of numbers and data points that paint a pretty bleak picture. Um, but if you were to be thinking about this from the perspective of communicating to the community, um, you know, Daniel Kahneman, who is the father of um, behavioural economics, um, talks to us about the way in which um, humans, all of us process information. If you give a bunch of data points to people um, that suggest they should rationally behave in a certain way, it often doesn't have that effect. Whereas if you tell them a story um, with those classic five W's of journalism, who, what, where, why, how, that prompts action. Now, it occurs to me in the strategy, while there's lots of these numbers, when it comes to telling the story of our recent cyber intrusions, it's pretty light on. Um, there's one text box which calls out a recent uh, sophisticated state-sponsored actor responsible for some serious breaches across the economy and across uh, government, but it doesn't really tell us much about the who, what, why, when, or even why we should care about that. Um, Alistair, I'll go back to you and then bring the others into the conversation. Does government need to do better at actually making the threats and incidences we face relatable and believable and authentic to people? Yep. So I'm going to call this the barbecue conversation. When I started getting involved in stopping cybercrime back in the early 2000s in the federal police, and I was at a barbecue and said to people I investigated cybercrime or tried to stop it, people would ask why. Now, uh, because is it such a thing? And now everyone knows someone that has been the victim of of an event, an identity stolen, credit card taken, you know, or or they've identified scams trying to be perpetuated against perpetrated, sorry, against them in perpetuity, um, you know, by criminals. And we've failed to drive cost into criminals. There's no doubt. We've, in fact, driven cost into our own operations. That's bad math. Um, but you're right. I mean, so so I think when it comes to cybercrime, telling stories works. I think when, it talk, when we talk about cybersecurity incidents, they do as well. Because most people, I think when you hear about nation state actors, and they are real for those listening out there, we know that there are sophisticated state-based actors that will come after our information. They will map out our critical infrastructure. We know they're there. But most people think, well, how does it impact me? We haven't done a great job, and I'm one of those people who have failed in telling that story, um, in saying why it actually matters to the punter on the street. It does actually matter. We've not done a great job of articulating because most of them would just say it's spy versus spy stuff, and it's kind of a bit cool, but I don't know what I'm meant to do. What action should I take back to Rory's point as this team sport thing? What can I do against a sophisticated state-based actor? The answer is, uh, spoiler alert, a lot. If you own a piece of critical infrastructure, if you run an IT system, you can actually make it much tougher for those threat actors. This seems as good as any time to go to a quick ad break. We'll be back straight after this message for more things on cybersecurity and Australia's new strategy. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. 
Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Okay, what should we be doing to bridge that gap between kind of we know that there are these sophisticated state actors out there, but what can people do? How can we empower that conversation? Well, I think we need to be having the conversation about what's actually happening on the threat front. So there have been uh, the industry panel called for the threat report to be reintroduced. And so sharing that conversation with the Australian people about what is actually happening in terms of the the macro state-based threats, I think is useful. But also we need to do a call to action for the Australian people. I've long advocated for a slip-slop-slap campaign. Uh, and uh, I know that the industry panels also mentioned that too, as well as uh, others in the industry. A call to action explaining the dynamics of the environment and the threats to the environment, but we want them to feel empowered in this environment. We don't want them to feel overwhelmed by it or frightened off by it so that they don't get engaged because we want them engaged so that they can they can enjoy the benefits of an internet environment and the prosperity that comes from that. So we want them engaged. We just need to empower them. And Yes, being upfront about the actual nature of the threats and where the threats are coming from and what we're going to be doing in response to that, but also being upfront about the nature of cybercrime. I mean, with the stats around one in three Australians have been victims of cybercrime, that it's worth, it costs the Australian economy about $29 billion. It's significant. As Alistair said, most Australians know someone who has had their ID theft, uh, their identity um or they've been a victim of some phishing scam or some other cyber criminal activity. So we need to actually explain, be open with the Australian people with them uh, with, about this, trust the Australian people that they can actually grip this up and understand it and be com- um, compelled to actually act, give them the tools to do that, to be empowered in that environment. But most of all, we need to do a call to action. I've been pushing for this for a very long time. I know that this strategy has a public funding for a public awareness campaign, but I think it's uh, $4.9 million over potentially 10 years, I don't know how much impact that's going to have. Just a simple call to action and they'll be there. You can, As we know, there are two types. We can break it down to two types of threat actors, nation states and criminals. Yeah. And, and, and the treatment of them is different in terms of how you can react as a, as a systems owner and operator. The analogy or the, the the joke about not needing to run faster than the bear, I've just got to run faster than you as the bear's chasing us, works with criminals. So to Gay's point, there are things we can do as an economy, an economy-wide uh, course of action that reduces the likelihood of Australians being victimised by criminals. And I say that because every criminal I've ever met online, I've met a lot over the years, is agnostic to where they get their money from. They don't care if they're stealing it from an American, a Brit, uh, someone from Japan or someone from Australia. They just want cash. They want identities. They want things they can parlay to cash. That's where we can actually just run faster than the others that are running from the bear. Right? We need to drive cost into criminals. We're going to make it harder for them to target our population. When it comes to nation states and, and nation state threat actors, when they're on mission and they're tasked with collecting against key priority assets in a nation, tougher call, but I'd like to sort wheat from chaff here. I would like us to make it harder for criminals. This strategy, by the way, goes 
quite some way of doing that. It's, there's, yeah. there's significant more money to the Australian Federal Police, an extra 100 detectives or so. That's good. Um, you know, I've, I've been a pretty vocal critic, even though I was in the Federal Police, that they have been a bit absent from this space. And generally, police all around the country haven't really risen to this challenge the way they, they could have over the years because you don't see it. It's like carbon monoxide. It can't really hurt you. Um, and that goes to the storytelling that's necessary because you, when you, when you meet a victim of cybercrime, they are as victimized as, as a victim of offline crime. So we've got to get away from this concept of being virtual. There's nothing virtual about the victimization that occurs. We can do a lot about crime. And I'm really glad to see it actually called out in this strategy. Nation state stuff tougher for us, but we can still do a lot more. And that's where I think the critical infrastructure bit comes to to the fore. Rory, do we need to abolish the term sophisticated nation state after oh, well, you know that I've, brilliant. No, you, you, you know I that I've, I've, I've gently commented on this term in the podcast before. I mean, I each time I hear the term, I'm not sure if I can see is it is it you know is it John Gilgood or Jeremy Irons or who who's the sophisticated uh, actor <laughs> I'm, I'm envisioning that that week? You know, um, and uh, you know, I, I think that. This strategy, just like the one in 2016, has been very polite in not naming names of uh, state actors, sophisticated or not. Um, it's interesting that Australia's uh, Australian government's often accused of sort of vilifying China, for example. Um, just to pull yet, a name randomly from a hat. Just to pull a name randomly from a hat. And yet uh, the word China doesn't appear anywhere in this strategy. Uh, look, that's fine as long as... There are there's clear public awareness and clear practical examples given to the public and the business community of case studies. The narrative you're talking about of where a state actor, whether it's China or whether it's Russia or whoever it might be, um, you know, perhaps um, I'm not sure if it's sort of Maldives or Venezuela or whoever, but it's more likely to be China or Russia, I suspect. A case of where uh, real harm has been done to the national interest, and, and there are plenty of case studies to choose from, whether it's uh, looking at uh, the Parliament, Bureau of Meteorology, uh, certain universities, mm -hmm. uh, certain <laughs> corporates um, in the United States. And I think this is one area where for all of the uh, the flaws that we see every day in the American system, the the transparency with which uh, court action is taken in the United States. If you if you, if you look at the extraordinary detail uh, that goes into the um, you know essentially into the the process of um, of prosecutions in the United States around, for example sophisticated state actors uh, from China and elsewhere, uh, we, we could learn a lot from that kind of narrative being injected into the public. Into you the make public a good debate. point. My, can I counter that, having, having obviously sat on the other side of Was it, it you that um, crossed the word China? No, out? I didn't, I promise. And I'd be happy to see country <laughs> names in there. I, I would, because I think we've got to mature the conversation. But... And, and I've been very supportive, by the way, of the US prosecutions because those those indictments are really powerful mm. forensic documents, right? I mean, that's the benefit of a of a of a liberal Western democracy in a court system where you've got to play your hand if you're a prosecutor. I like it. I, my question is Australian to you, targets. Some of those are actually yes, of Australian course, targets, yeah, yeah. And they're named um, in American court documents, yep. not in Australian. I know. Documents. I know. I'm conscious of that my question is whether that's because they're a superpower and they can do those things. And mm. I wonder whether as a middle or small power, it's much tougher to name. In Australia, you know, in in defence of the government, and I no longer work there, but in defence of the government, it would have been unheard of 
six years mm. ago to yep. name yes. any country. Yep. You wouldn't have called out Russia for the Cisco smart feature I call floor um, uh, abuse that the Russians did in 2000, and I think it was April 2017. You wouldn't have called out China in December of 2017 and being involved in the cloud hopper, big MSS, you know, massive, mm. I, I really aggressive attack. And this against, stuff's all on the public record. Yeah, now. it is. So can you I just wouldn't jump, have had nations. Yeah, go. Can I just jump in there? I mean, you, you mentioned that was a very, the cloud hopper, um, malware was very aggressive. That attribution statement, which Australia put out in December of 2018, it last came working out, day before Christmas. Exactly, mm. they yeah. take the trash out day. With many other, with um, many which others. I can add. Yeah, but let's in, talk in about politics. that. So that was when we went out with a whole range of other countries, and so a lot of that timing depends on other people. Um, you're right, I, I, and I've got to say, if you're going to name a country, you name it on a day when it gets picked up. So it wasn't a take out the trash timing. That was a coordinating with your allies and other, a lot of other countries who came out and named. So it's not like Australia doesn't name. And December is not so weak in the news cycle of other countries. No, exactly. No, that is the point. It just, it just happens to be a very Australian thing, at least like, a couple of Christmas ago. It may not be the same. This could, could more be done about that, though, I suppose? I mean, that, that yes. example is not necessarily one that is a barbecue stopper conversation. Could we have, you know, once we make that attribution statement, find ways to then make it digestible and translatable um, to everyday mums and dads yes. and, and businesses in a different way? And I suspect if we had Toby Feakin, the cyber ambassador, uh, sitting here with us, he'd say Australia would choose to name a country when it suits Australia's interest. And you heard the Prime Minister saying that in June when he didn't name the sophisticated state-based threat actor. Um, and he'd say, we do that at our own choosing when it benefits the people of Australia. I mean, I think most people in this discussion these days kind of say, okay, it benefits us now to start talking. Or else, to your question earlier, when you tell the story, it kind of seems irrelevant. Name the potential threat actor. Most times... Um, People will name it for you anyway if you just call it a sophisticated actor. And they're largely reasonably well-informed, clearly, uh, by naming those countries. Um, and, and the world hasn't collapsed around us when we do name because that's kind of what nation states should do to each other. I do advocate that we, you know, if we're a liberal Western democracy and we believe in our values and we, and we, and the government says we'll push back on matters that matter to us, you know, human rights and free trade and the like, let's, draw a line and say cyber is one of those, that there are behaviours that are unacceptable and we should be naming countries. But I do think, in fairness, there's been a maturation. Maybe it's there like a 2016 been. strategy to a 2020 strategy. Let's see if in the next couple of years Australia just comes out and starts being a bit more a bit more, um, you know, into calling out the names. Yeah, there, there has it has been a recent phenomenon, but a welcome phenomenon. And it, it's, it's not just a case of naming and uh, over what, but also what the consequences will be. The so what bit. The yeah. so what bit. And, uh, and also to your point about the fact, Catherine, that, uh, about the, what are the, what does it mean for the Australian people? Because it kind of seems a little bit stratospheric at the moment and kind of out straight out of a Bond movie. But, what does it actually mean? What's the impact on the Australian people? What's the impact on their everyday lives? That needs to be translated. So it's not just the case of naming them and um, and the consequences or what outlining what they've done, naming who it was and the consequences of that action, but also what does it actually mean? What's the impact for the Australian people? I don't like sophisticated state actors as a term, but it is a very sophisticated debate and that's part of the challenge because, for example, I don't think it's just about warning 
the general citizenry or small or medium businesses, for example, about um, how their interests, their well-being, their welfare, their privacy is going to be affected. It's also about their responsibilities. And if you look at the, some of the live issues right now, if we talk about the future of TikTok or the future of WeChat, for example, uh, including in this country, uh, there'll be plenty of people, <clears throat> I think there'll be a groundswell of um, people who'll be really upset about losing, uh, for example, the um, you know the, the cultural and creative and novelty value of um of TikTok, TikTok. Um, probably not the same number of people that hold concerns about human rights in China, but there is an important narrative that's going to have to be constructed in time, in, uh, sophisticated and yet very simple in the way it's delivered about the direct connection between the, um, I guess the, you know, the the indiscriminate sharing of of data or the uh, provision of data essentially to a certain foreign state and the uh, really damaging repercussions that that data can then have either on your national interest or your ability to build that foreign state actor's um, security capabilities, advantages, surveillance state, whatever it might be. So there's a huge amount of work that still lies ahead in getting these nar- narratives clear and compelling as, as frankly, at, at heart they are. And for our international listeners, Australia has taken a different approach to the US. There's no decision to ban TikTok, but the Prime Minister has said in public comments that it should be a buyer beware approach uh, to those users who do use TikTok. And I think for the one point, I think it's six million Australians using TikTok, a buyer beware approach does imply they need some level of knowledge about that threat landscape, which ties into what we're talking about. Um, We're moving towards the end of our podcast here, but I do want to take us now to the international perspective. Um, Alistair, you mentioned that a Australia is a, is a medium player in all of this. There's different things that we can do than the US, for instance, and we've shown middle power diplomacy by joining in on some of those multilateral attribution statements you mentioned. Rory, this strategy here flags that there is another strategy coming, which is the uh, international cyber engagement and critical technologies engagement strategy coming out of our Department of Foreign Affairs. What do you think, um, you know, what would you like to see in that strategy? And indeed, what do you think some of our partners in the region are hoping for in that next strategy? Well, I think to the credit of the Australian system, there was an international uh, cyber strategy, I think a year or two after the the original cyber uh, security strategy. I think it was in 2017, the international strategy. So there is there is good work in place for, uh, on things like uh, the the norms and rules and the international system, uh, trying to maintain, I guess, to the extent we can, the kind of uh, free and open internet that, uh, that that we've believed in. Although there's a whole fresh debate that I'm sure colleagues here would would love to get in, into you one time about whether in fact about whether in fact it's actually in our interest to accept the reality now of the bifurcated internet that that we're getting. And I'm probably moving towards that side of the debate. However, um, capacity building in partner countries uh, was a high point of the existing strategy. Um, maybe on cybercrime, it might be fine if someone else uh, is a bit slower when the bear is coming than you are. But on national security, I think there's a strong case to say that we want our neighbours to be able to run as fast as we can, or if not almost as fast as, as we can, and we want to help them get there because we want to build, I guess, solidarity in, in cybersecurity. So I'd, I'd like to imagine that whatever's coming as the next international cybersecurity strategy, and this time cyber and critical technology strategy, it really doubles down on that uh, investment in capacity building, in, in supporting the cyber resilience of our region, 
even though there are so many other things that I guess in, in theory we could and should be investing resources in in this COVID, um, COVID era. Just one point to note, though, and an interesting um, slight tension in the debate is that at the moment our international strategy looks like it's going to focus on critical technology as well as cyber. And yes, critical technologies are defined as having that, that being underpinned by that information dimension uh, that is cyber. But it's interesting that domestically at the moment, we're still treating cyber and critical technologies almost as two, um, two separate sides of the coin. And I wonder if that's um, a sustainable distinction over time. Again, maybe it's another another conversation to be had. Okay, can I bring you in on that point? Because um, this this strategy that we're talking about, the cyber security strategy, does take a very kind of traditional, I'd call it CIA triad um, approach to cyber. For non-cyber people, that's kind of protecting the confidentiality, integrity and availability of data and systems. It doesn't look so much about the other bad ways in which technology can be used or gamed um, to create national security um, outcomes. So for instance, if we think about a lot of the most recent salient um, cyber attacks that we've seen or cyber incidences would be uh, Russian state-sponsored interference in US politics. Most of that doesn't rely on cyber security or cyber or hacking. It results, it comes from gaming algorithms and spreading propaganda online or even buying legitimate ad spaces on social media companies. Is it, to take Rory's point a bit further, is it sustainable for us to keep putting, or it seems in this strategy, to keep putting cybersecurity narrow in one bucket and then all of these other uh, broader issues of kind of cyber safety online or national security and the technology intersection in a bunch of other buckets spread across government? I mean, how does that even work for a start? Who's who's picking up the pieces of all of that? And, and is that really a sustainable approach? Well, it gets uh, one of the points that was made in the industry panel report was the fact that we actually need to get, in a way, one point of truth uh, and greater uh, centralisation and consolidation of the way government agencies work in the cybersecurity space. So uh, that didn't seem to get picked up much in this strategy, and I was a bit disappointed with that because uh, it does, as you say, very much focus on ASD just in terms of the funding. You look at the funding and where that, the large chunk of that's going. It's largely in the ASD home affairs space. And so it would be good if we could get a consolidation of government agencies in terms of who was actually looking after, say, cyber policy and uh, awareness and education, because at the moment it's spread right across a range of agencies, which is challenging for the Australian uh, public. It's challenging for small business. It's challenging for critical infrastructure. It's challenging for large organisations. So that was uh, disappointing in the fact that that was a very strong recommendation of the industry panel uh, to actually get that sort of one point of truth, uh, speaking with one voice uh, government agencies. And there is a box in the strategy that tries to disambiguate cyber security from cyber safety, yes. um, which from a bureaucratic perspective might be great, but I, I do wonder about how an ordinary mum and dad reading that uh, might well, see that I've, difference. I've, I've held both roles. Um it is. I understand the call for this being in one sort of homogenous, centralised. I have been pushing it for I a long time. I know she has. And, and <laughs> but, so, as the e-safety commissioner, you know, the benefit of that being a statutory position gives the e-safety commissioner that independence that I think you want for 
working with those social media companies. I think the bits that, that's missing most, and so I, I really, you know, and, and I think the safety office has grown really well, particularly under the second commissioner, which but for the listening audience was not me. It was my successor, Julian and Grant, who's stuck at it and doing a really good job. Um, but I, 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 uh, I think the bit that's missing more than anything is is the threat to democracy by misusing technologies. The the the, the nub of your question, because people don't read the newspaper now. They consume online information very differently. They're not reading the online newspapers even. They're going and finding it through their social media feed. They're not watching the evening news. We know all of this, right? The media company results will show you where the eyeballs aren't. That means that the information can be much more easily manipulated using those algorithms, using those very unregulated, non-journalistic sources of information. That's a huge threat to our democracy, uh, and and as a liberal Western democracy, we're very uninclined usually to start saying where we think something is untrue. And we sit through these elections, state elections matter an awful lot, and a nation state, a foreign nation state, would have a, an interest in being able to manipulate those outcomes as they clearly would from a federal election. Even if it was just calling into question the results of those elections, then that undermines the very democracy. The most critical piece of in- infrastructure we have in this country, I used to say this all the time in the public service, is our parliaments, because the parliaments are, are, the, are the voice of the people. You might have to squint occasionally to see the, you know, it's a bit like a Monet. It's not always a perfect reflection of, of those same barbecue conversations I have, but it's a pretty good approximation. And, and all public servants in this country answer to that democracy. If you undermine that, that parliament, then, then the whole thing falls down. And, and what I don't see is enough emphasis on protecting our democracy, our number one critical asset as a nation. Look, that seems like a perfect point, if a pessimistic one, perhaps to end the podcast on. There's so much more we could talk about and we'll hopefully engage with it over the coming weeks and months. Um, Thank you very much, Gay, Alastair, Rory, uh, for your contributions and analysis of the 2020 uh, cybersecurity strategy. Thank you. It was a rally. And a big thanks to Gay, Alastair and Rory for joining us on this special episode today as well to Catherine for her deft handling of such an important discussion. As Rory mentioned, we are all on the front line of national security now, not only because we ourselves spend so much of our personal and professional life on the internet, but also because of the data we unconsciously give away through the internet of things, such as the camera in our doorbell, our children's toys, our smart televisions, or even the networks within networks, such as our smart homes, or even our family car. So your views on these issues are important to us and we would love you to join the discussion, which you can do by getting in touch with us on Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum or at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod or you can go old school and send an email to podcast at policyforum.net. Of course, we appreciate any rating and feedback you give us on whatever platform you pod with and we love it when you share this pod with a colleague or friend. So thanks for listening to this special episode and we will be back to speak to you again soon on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. Podcast.